0: Good morning, I'll be reading Exodus 32, one through four. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who would go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt,
1: we do not know what has happened to him. Then Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioned it with a tool, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. We want to invite our kids to participate in a few events at this time. We have an attended nursery for the really little ones. We have toddle time for two-year-olds, and then uh, kids that are 3 year old through the second grade, we have children.
0: What is holding you back from the life that God created you to live? Are you being held captive by doubts, fears, or sins? Like the Israelites, we can get comfortable in captivity. Staying with the familiar can seem easier than moving forward in faith. The redemptive story of the Exodus reminds us that God wants to lead us out of captivity and that we can trust God as we journey to freedom. We are in a series, as you can see, called Journey to Freedom about the Exodus. But it's not just a series about those historical settings and those occurrences that took place back then that we read about in the Old Testament. This journey to freedom is our story. You see, we are held captive by the things that pull us away from God, sin and darkness and all of those things of the world that vie for our allegiance. And we are on a journey to freedom, freedom from those things and freedom for the praise and honor and glory of God. And so this is our story our journey to freedom, and we can learn much from looking at their story as it reflects ours. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32 today. If you want to turn over there in your Bible or your device, you can follow along. Some of the verses will be on the screen today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. You know, complete devotion to something that you cannot see is difficult, isn't it? That's why the Apostle Thomas earned an adjective that became permanent Thomas would be forever known as what doubting Thomas because Thomas said I need confirmation for what I am expected to believe in John 20 verse 25 he said I need to see those nail marks I need to put my finger there I need to put my hand in his side I need confirmation for what I am expected to believe. I need to see with my own eyes. You've heard that phrase, seeing is believing. And in many ways that's true, and the inverse can also sometimes be true. Not seeing so often is not believing. It becomes difficult to believe in a God that we can't see with our natural eyes. It becomes sometimes a challenge for us to know and to believe that the hand of God is at work in this dark world when we can't see that hand. To know that the fingerprints of an invisible God are visible in our world. A couple of weeks ago, I decided to go to the eye doctor. (laughs) It was finally time. I, I can't see. I had LASIK a long time ago, but... That's faded or whatever it does. So I decided, you know, I need to go see. Went to the eye doctor and I said, Doc, I can't see the faces of the people I'm preaching to. He said, well, really, is that a problem? And I thought, you know, you make a good point. You must have visited our church before. He said, oh, you mean you can't see the people who are saying amen when you preach? And then then I just started laughing. (laughs) I want to see them when they fall asleep. That's what I want to see. No, actually, most of that conversation didn't go down that way. But I did tell him I needed to see the people's faces that I'm preaching to. And so he did all the tests that they do at the eye doctor. And and basically what he said is, at your age, that's never a good way to start. (laughs) At your age, and then how your eyes are with this astigmatism you have. He said, you can't have it all if we're going to go with contacts. If we're going to use contact lenses, you won't be able to see everything. We can work on distance, maybe with one contact and see if your other eye can get some of this other stuff. Or we can do distance here and mid-range here. And basically, you're going to have to still wear reading glasses for up close. I thought, man, wearing contacts and reading glasses, that seems overkill. But that's my situation right now just kind of impossible to see everything you know when it comes to faith we can't see everything we can't have it all we live in this physical tangible world and we can see many things in this world but there is another realm isn't there there is a spiritual realm and our natural eyes can't always see those things in the spiritual realm And if we have this vision up close, then maybe that vision, spiritually, is sometimes difficult. And if we have that vision, that spiritual, that eternal vision, then it also puts this tangible, physical vision into perspective. I think that's why it's called faith, because we can't see. We can't see everything that we are called to believe. We can't have physical tangible confirmation for the things that we are called to have faith in yes it would be nice to say unless I see with my eyes and put my finger there on the nail marks and put my hand in his side I will not believe but that's not the case for us we are called to believe in things that we cannot see with our natural eyes the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 verse 1 defines faith that way I think it's sometimes funny that we come up with different definitions of faith when it's right there in the Bible. Let's just read the definition God gives us. Faith, in in chapter 11, verse 1, is being sure of what we hope for, is having this confidence in what we hope for, and this assurance or this certainty of things we cannot see being certain of things you cannot see. Now, to someone in the world who is rooted in the physical world, who has no faith, someone to whom faith is foreign, this sounds either absurd or naive, doesn't it? What do you mean you're going to believe in something that you just hope for? Well, why don't you just go down and buy a lottery ticket and hope that you win, And if you hope hard enough, then you can believe it. It's true. That's what the world sometimes says about faith, doesn't it? But for those of us who choose to believe, those of us who choose to see through a different set of eyes, we understand that faith is not always a blind faith. That there are signposts in this world pointing to God, that we have the word of God breathed by God. And that there are things in this world that confirm the word of God. We may not be able to see everything. We can't have it all. But from what we can see, we choose to believe. And the parts that we can't see, we choose to see through the eyes of faith. Now that verse in Hebrews chapter 11, did you catch the end of it? This is what the ancients were commended for. Of course, this is the, what we call the faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, I can tell you about some ancients that weren't commended for this kind of faith. It was a herd of Israelites somewhere between Egypt and the promised land of Canaan. And they were struggling to see. Specifically, they were struggling to see God. You say, well, how could they not see God? He was with them. He gave them tangible, visible proof of his presence, of his hand, of deliverance, of protection, of provision. Remember the plagues that brought him out of Egypt. Remember the Red Sea, that was dramatic. That doesn't happen just any day. Did they not see that? Remember the manna from heaven. Remember the water from the rock. Remember all of those signs, the the pillar of cloud by day pillar of fire by night, all of those visible reminders, and yet they struggled to see. And when they had a problem with their sight, it meant they had a problem with their faith. That lack of vision led to a lack of faith, and before too long, they do something that is unfaithful. It's an act of defiance against God. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw, interesting word there, isn't it? When they saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. <laughs> you see, they were going by what they saw. They opened their eyes, they look around, and they don't see God, and they don't see Moses. It's been over a month. He's nowhere to be found they're ready to go they're ready to move on you see Moses had gone up on the mountain on their behalf on the people's behalf to enter into this covenant relationship with God so God could reveal his law so he could reveal his covenant relationship to Moses on behalf of the people that's where Moses was but it had been 40 days And they hadn't seen him. So often that happens to us. So often we let our physical surroundings obscure our faith. We are physical beings. We are more than that, but we are physical beings who live in a physical world. In many ways we are rooted in this tangible world. And we so often allow the things of this world to obscure our view of God. We allow our circumstances, good or bad, sometimes both, to get in the way of us seeing God and what He's doing around us. It's like if you go to a game or a, a concert, and you know you're 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 sitting there and you're trying to watch what's happening on stage or on the on the field or the court, but there's someone sitting in front of you and they're kind of blocking your view, and and so you turn this way, and then they kind of turn that way, and so you turn, you know, you just keep trying to to see because they're blocking your view and at some point you just go you know what it's, just, it's not worth it <laughs> it's just not worth it so many times that's what we do in life we allow our circumstances to keep stacking up in front of us and we try for a little bit we want to be faithful people we look this way we look that way we try to look over look around and then we get tired we get weary we get distracted and we say forget it I, I don't even know if God's there I don't even know if I can't see him. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if he's there at all. We so often let our physical surroundings, our circumstances obscure our view of God, obscure our faith. And when we do that, we miss out on some of the wonder of God, the mystery of God, because we are so rooted in the tangible, the physical, we want to see it. We want to feel it. We want to touch it. Because we are so rooted in those sensory experiences, we often miss the mystery and the wonder of God. Read the scriptures. God is mysterious. God is awesome. God cannot be contained in a box, backed in a corner. When we allow our circumstances to block our view of God, we miss out on the mystery and the wonder and the awe of God. The Israelites were certain that they couldn't see God anymore. They couldn't see his agent Moses. They got impatient. And so you take this desire to control things and you put it with impatience. And what happens? You take matters into your own hands. And that's what they did. Back in the text, verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron... He took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. (laughs) Blatant blasphemy. These things that you can finally see and touch, these are your deities, your gods. But he doesn't stop there. These are the things that are responsible for bringing you up out of Egypt. Really, Aaron? Really? Is that what you're going to try to convince them of? Well, it doesn't take much convincing because they're ready to believe because they want a God they can see. Don't miss the tragic irony here. (laughs) What did they make this golden calf out of? The gold, the metal, the earrings, all of that that they had received likely from the Egyptians. God had arranged this that they would get these these earrings and this gold from the Egyptians. They became symbols of his deliverance for them. Those are the very things, the symbols of God's deliverance that they used to make their own God and then claim that that God delivered them from Egypt. (laughs) The irony is striking. They are tone deaf and defiant. Verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. (laughs) While Moses is up on the mountain getting detailed instructions about the law and detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle the very place where God would reside among his people, the very symbol of God's presence, while Moses is learning about building the tabernacle, his people are at the base of the mountain having their own building project. But they are building something else, not something that would represent the presence of God, taking matters in their own hands and their impatient defiance of God. They build their own idol, their own God. Again, the irony already they have broken the first two commandments don't put any other gods before me and don't make and bow down to any image so God sees what's happening of course God is up on the mountain we can't contain God but God is is on the mountain with Moses but that doesn't mean he doesn't know what's going on at the base of the mountain God sees what's going on with his people and he is disappointed to say the least He is not happy about what they are doing. His covenant people are breaking the covenant because they wanted a God they could see and touch because they got impatient. They disobeyed and defied God. And God is not happy with them. So God tells Moses on the mountain what the people are doing. And it's funny, tragically funny. In verse seven, God says, Moses, the people that you brought out of Egypt... (laughs) It's kind of interesting he says it that way. You know, it's kind of like when, you know, your, your, your child does something they shouldn't and one parent says to the other, your kid is doing this. God says, the people, Moses, you brought out of Egypt. Look at what they're doing. I think part of that saying, this holy God is ready to separate himself from these unholy people. God calls them stiff-necked which obviously means stubborn, defiant, resistant, independent. But I think that's a very descriptive word, isn't it? Stiff-necked. When you're stiff-necked, you can't really look around, right? You can't really see what's around you. I think part of what he's saying is they won't look around them. They won't look behind them to see what I've done. They won't look up and see that I'm here. They won't open their eyes. God's ready to punish them. And he's ready to to reboot his whole covenant and his covenant people with Moses. But Moses, not yet seeing the train wreck that's happening at the base of the mountain, advocates for them. He intercedes for them. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? Did you see that? Remember what God said to him, Moses people you brought out? Moses says, nope, you brought them out. Nobody wants to claim these people. With great power and a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. And of course, God relented. You say, well, Moses taught God into backing down We have this conversation written in such a way that we can understand the evolution of what happened. God knew he would relent when he had this conversation. It's for our sake. And it gives us a window into the heart of God. Yes, the Old Testament God. He is gracious. He is merciful. And he shows mercy here. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for sin. Sin always has consequences. Forgiven sin often has consequences. You know that. We know that. We live that. It has social and relational consequences, it has physical consequences. Sometimes with the law, it has consequences, or financially, or in many other ways. But God shows mercy. But he doesn't remove all of the consequences. So finally, Moses begins to make his way down the mountain. And he sees for himself what Aaron and the people are doing. And you can probably guess his response. Now, remember, he just went to bat for them. (laughs) But when he sees with his own eyes, he is outraged. Verse 19. When Moses approached the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, the tablets on which God had inscribed his law, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that people had made and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it <laughs> Can you imagine? It's almost like Moses is saying, "You want to experience something with your senses? you want something that will satisfy you, that will fulfill you, well here, consume this. Consume the very thing that you think is going to satisfy you and fulfill you. How does it taste? Is it filling? Is it satisfying? Is it life-giving? No, it's, it's poison. Exactly. Exactly. He makes them drink it. Verse 21, he said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? If you're a Bible marker, underline that word sin there. It's mentioned seven times in this chapter. You see, this was sin. And we need to call sin, sin. This wasn't just an honest mistake. It wasn't just a, you know, poor judgment. It wasn't just, oh, we got our priorities out of order. This was sin defiant sin against God sin is serious and until we face the reality of our sinful actions you know what we will do we'll only dismiss our sin we will rationalize it we will excuse it we will dismiss it we will say it's not that big a deal that's what Aaron did when Moses confronted Aaron what did Aaron say verse 22 do not be angry my lord Aaron answered You know how prone these people are to evil. (laughs) They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. It's almost like Aaron is saying, Moses, where were you? You weren't here. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and looky there, out came this calf. (laughs) I just threw all those ingredients in the pan, I put it in the oven, and then when the bell went bing, I took it out and it was a cake. I don't know how that happened, it's magic. You see what Aaron's doing there, right? When sin is confronted, it is so easy to not take ownership because that makes us uncomfortable. We feel guilt, we have responsibility when we have ownership of our sin. It's much easier to blame someone else someone else's fault it's my spouse's fault it's my kids fault it's my parents fault it's the you know government's fault it's someone's fault my boss it's so much easier to blame others than to take ownership of our sin Aaron says you know how these people are I was just trying to be a good leader and we gathered some jewelry and next thing you know they're worshiping a golden calf I don't know he's trying to remove himself from responsibility sin must always be dealt with and God deals with the sin of his people Moses intercedes again maybe after a timeout after counting to 10 Moses again goes to bat for the people and God again shows mercy but as we said earlier there are still consequences sin still has consequences you read the rest of chapter 32 and the beginning of chapter 33 you'll see some of those consequences and they were severe but God showed mercy. God kept his covenant people intact, and he kept his covenant intact. Now, we look at this story, and I I think if we are honest with ourselves, we realize that that the Israelites' impatient defiance against God, it, it mirrors our story. Like I said earlier, yes, we are looking at their journey to freedom, but this is our story, too. So much of our sin is rooted in short-sightedness and selfishness. We want a God we can see. We want to experience and touch and see and feel the things that we give our lives to. We want to know that they're going to be there. We want to see the target that we're pursuing. We want to be satisfied and fulfilled. And so often we go to the world... For that we get impatient we pray to God and he doesn't seem to hear us or answer us we get discouraged we look around and we see difficulty in our world we look at our own lives and we see pain and injustice and things that aren't fair that aren't right and what do we do we take matters into our own hands That need to control meets that impatience, and we take matters into our own hands. In our desire for something real, we bow down to counterfeit gods, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves, that's so often what we do. We want something that satisfies us, that is worth pursuing, that gives us meaning, that makes sense, and it has to be something that we can see because we are physical beings So we chase the things of the world that make all of those promises of fulfillment and happiness. Charles McIntosh said this, the human heart loves something that can be seen, which meets and gratifies the senses. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter one, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. (laughs) He says people got so... Frustrated, Their view of God was so obscured by their circumstances that they decided to take matters into their own hands and they traded the sovereignty and the glory of the one and only God for something that they could control. They thought they could control. Something that they could see. They thought they could see it. And while probably none of us is bowing down to a bird, a reptile, Trust me, I will never bow down to a reptile, especially a snake. None of us is probably bowing down to a golden calf. But we have our idols, don't we? They're there. If we're honest with ourselves, this world is full of them. Things that we can see and touch, things that promise fulfillment and satisfaction. And sometimes we build them ourselves. Sometimes we borrow them like Israel did from the Egyptian pagan god of the of the bull and then unfortunately all too often we certainly bow down to them and so let me ask you what idols have captured your heart again this is a time for honesty self-reflection what idols have captured your heart you see god works in the spiritual realm That overlaps with the physical realm but it's so often difficult to see him to see what he's doing he offers and promises peace but how do you see peace right it's hard to kind of nail down God offers forgiveness and I know the effects of forgiveness and I can see some of that down the road but how do you see forgiveness God offers salvation again how do you see that how do you quantify salvation I need something I can experience with my senses We get impatient. And so we start building and borrowing and bowing down to the idols of this world. We bow down to the altar of success and money and materialism. We worship instant gratification and entitlement. We chase after things like winning and working, and achieving, and producing, and the praise of people. We bow at the altar of materialism, and nationalism, and consumerism, and so many other isms. We build altars that are bigger, and better, and brighter, and more beautiful. We worship pleasure, and famous people sometimes, and self-promotion. These things make promises to us that they will give to us, but they only take from us. We consume and are consumed by content in this world, oftentimes on our little devices. So much content, entertainment, social media, all of those things, those things promise something. The the status that we seek, it promises something the bigger house, the nice cars, all of that stuff. And, And many of these things aren't inherently bad. But how often do we bow down to these things and we look to these things as our gods if we're honest with ourselves? The things where we find meaning and identity and satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose. What idols are capturing your heart right now? I can assure you, they promise to give to you, but they will only take from you. You know, sometimes one of our idols is is unexpected. Sometimes we bow down to the altar of religion. And let let me see if I can explain that. In our desire for the tangible, for the observable, for the quantifiable, we can begin to worship religion rather than God. We exalt the means and the methods rather than the master. And religion and religious practices become a platform for us to be praised, to be recognized, to be honored, rather than a place to honor and praise and recognize God. One of the most confounding things about this story in Exodus 32 to me is this blending of idolatry and the worship of God you remember what Aaron said they build this golden calf and then Aaron says let's have a festival to the Lord let's make sacrifices to the Lord he's talking about Yahweh God and so we see idolatry blended with the worship of the one and only God It's like they're wrapping their idolatry in spiritual language, the language of true devotion to God. Why would someone do that? Because it sounds better. Because it's more appealing. Because there's a little bit of truth in it and you can get other people to endorse it. And you can feel better about it. How often do we do that? We worship religion rather than God, but we wrap it in spiritual language, the language of true devotion. Jesus had strong words for people who did that, namely the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees worshiped the religious rule. All around them, there were people who would be hurting, people in need, people being oppressed. There would be injustice, but it didn't matter to them because that wasn't what they were about. They were about doing things to be seen. They were about putting this yoke, this burden of the commands and of their traditions on other people rather than serving and worshiping the God of love who is begging them to see the people around them and love them. What idols have captured your heart? Maybe it's most unexpected ones. You see, we do that because those things are visible. Religion is visible, it's quantifiable. We can number it, we can say this, this, and this. Success and money and pleasure, all of those things are in a context of the physical. If someone says to you, What is success? you can immediately think of things that, that you would say to define what success is. And many of those things are confined and controlled by the things of this world. You see, those things are observable, they're quantifiable, they're visible. And God is not. We like things with texture. <laughs> we want things that appeal to our senses we want a God we can see right for Israel it was a cow probably specifically it was a bull but think about that it was a cow of all things you're going to replace God with a cow but it was familiar they'd seen it in Egypt it was tangible they could see it and touch it in fact they made it out of their own jewelry Their idolatry was so noteworthy, there was a song written about them. Did you know that? Psalm 106. Here's an excerpt. Thankfully for you, I don't know the tune, so I won't sing it. I'll just read it. Verse 19, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God, I like the way it says that, their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. Do you see the contrast there? They're glorious, awesome God for a cow that eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. You see, out of sight, out of mind. We too often forget about God because we can't see God. We want a God we can see. So we trade the glory of God for an image of something that has no value, something that eats grass. When you put it that way, it sounds really silly, doesn't it? It sounds absurd. It sounds like, why would anyone with half a brain do that? Good question. Why would we do that? Why do we do that? So often that desire for the things that we see that are in our foreground keep us from seeing at a distance. Have you ever stopped and thought about why we close our eyes when we pray, generally? Now, Carrie Ann and I often pray in the car when we're traveling. It's a great time to pray. Whether she's saying the prayer or I'm saying the prayer, we have a rule, though, and you can guess. Whoever's driving, you don't close your eyes, for obvious reasons. We tried that. No, we didn't, but we we have obvious reasons you don't close your eyes but have you ever thought why do we close our eyes when we pray as far as I know there's no real instruction in the bible about that there are a lot of postures of prayer in the bible and we would actually probably be well served to look at those and and reflect those in our prayers but there's really nothing about closing your eyes maybe it came out of this this desire to be reverent and to be respectful that makes sense Maybe it was the notion that you, no one could see God and survive, and so close your eyes. Maybe it was just a practical way to stay more focused, right, and keep the distractions out. That makes sense, too. Although I will tell you that sometimes I get more distracted with my eyes closed than I do with my eyes open. I don't know if that's just me, but it probably is. But why do we close our eyes? Maybe there's something... Maybe there's something deeper going on, and maybe next time you close your eyes to pray, you can think about this a little bit. Maybe we close our eyes because as we humbly approach the glorious, sovereign God, we recognize that we cannot see him with our natural eyes. And we just accept that. In faith, we accept that. And so we close those eyes because really they are no use to us as we approach the throne room of God acknowledging the presence of God we don't need these eyes we choose to see with a different set of eyes the eyes of our heart spiritual eyes the eyes of faith and when we look at God and when we look at the world and when we look at other people and ourselves through spiritual eyes through eyes of faith then we know that we can be sure of what we hope for and we can be certain of the things that we cannot see that's faith paul wrote in colossians chapter 3 verse 1 since then you have been raised with christ set your hearts on things above where christ is He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He says, Stop looking so much around you because you are going to have your view blocked of God and start seeing with a different set of eyes. God is there. You can see Him. You're just using the wrong eyes. So as you think about your life and you think about whatever idols are blocking your view of God maybe it's time to deal with it maybe it's time to tear those things down you, you have to start with acknowledging that they are there that you're building them you're borrowing them you're bowing down to them and it's time to destroy them get rid of them they're keeping you from God and by pledging your allegiance to those things you are saying like Aaron said falsely that this is the God who's delivering us that these things are where I find my identity and my purpose and my meaning in life. Don't believe that lie Satan is telling you. Whatever those things promise to give you, it is not true. They will just take from you. So destroy them. Get rid of them. Let nothing come between you and our glorious God. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ, to be baptized, to come up out of that water a new creation We'd love to celebrate that with you. Don't delay any longer. Make that choice to confess your faith and put on Christ. He's ready for you. Are you ready for him? Maybe we can encourage you. Maybe as you think about the idols in your life, you need some help. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor, a little room right behind me off that hallway. Right after we're done, in just a minute as we stand, you can go there. They'll encourage you and pray for you. They'd love to visit with you. Or you can come down to the front, and we'll lift you up in prayer together as a church family. There's something we can do. We invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand.
1: I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can be. Pe- every hour pray. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to come here today and worship you and to study your word with others. We thank you for the encouragement it is just to be here with other Christians and to fellowship together. Please be with all those who are sick or have other medical reasons that they can't be here. Please help them to heal soon and please be with the doctors who are taking care of them. Please help them to be able to come back here soon so they can be with us